As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What is up, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of You're Doing a Good Job. And in case you don't know, my name is Caleb, and I am so glad that you are here. All right, we are back with a new episode And I'll be honest with you all, it is a good one. I'm not just saying that, it really is such a great episode. And it's actually extremely timely. This past week, my partner and I, Kara, we just announced that uh, we are expecting our first and we are so thrilled about it. It's just been an overwhelmingly good experience. But now that parenting is going to be part of my reality, I've been taking a deep interest in what it looks like to parent consciously. And that's why I am so excited about today's episode with parenting coach and psychologist, Dr. Anne-Louise Lockhart. Dr. Lockhart said it best when she said, we need to own our feelings so our kids can own theirs too. Before starting any more parenting techniques or strategies, first start with changing your parent mindset. And that is exactly what we dive into on today's episode. What does it mean to parent consciously and how to change your parent mindset? It is so, so good, I promise you. But before we get started, let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Lockhart. Dr. Lockhart is a West Indian woman and a pediatric psychologist, parent coach, author, business owner of a thriving practice in San Antonio, Texas, a New Day Pediatric Psychology. She is also a highly well-known speaker and writer and writes on multiple platforms and speaking on parenting, childhood diagnosis, executive functioning, and racism. On top of all of that, she is a wife of 22 years, a mom of two kids, and has over 15 years of experience as a pediatric psychologist that specializes in working with clients who present with medical diagnoses and are seeking alternative solutions. She also serves as a parent coach for parents who have kids with ADHD, anxiety, and behavioral concerns. She also helps high-performing professionals and athletes overcome mental blocks that impact their peak performance. She is absolutely amazing, and you're just going to love her. Okay, so last thing, before we dive into this podcast, can I ask a really big favor? I ask it every week, but if you find this episode useful in any way, it would just mean the world to me if you, one, left a review on my podcast, as well as share this episode with one friend that you might think would benefit from it. That would be so incredibly helpful. And now that we got that out of the way, here's what Dr. Lockhart has to say. 
awesome with Dr. Lockhart. I am so excited uh, to, to be here with you today. And I just want to say thank you so, so much for uh, taking the time to be on the show. Thank you, Caleb. And likewise, I'm, I'm happy to be here and I'm uh, glad that you asked. I know that you, uh, and what actually caught my attention is that you kind of market yourself as a parent coach. And I'm like, oh, like, duh. <laughs> I'm like, why, like, why would we not have be like, why would there not be parent coaches out there? Um, and I feel like I probably will be hiring you soon because we are expecting our first (laughs) and we're so excited, but I will say that now that we are expecting, I find myself observing a lot more and then putting myself in that in those shoes that are of the people who I'm observing. So I was just in the airport flying home from a speaking engagement and I see a child like having I don't even I don't even know if it's a temper tantrum or hungry. I don't know what's going on, but I'm watching how the parents are responding and then I'm asking like what would I do in this situation? And when I put myself there, I'm like, "Dear God, I have no idea what to do." <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a tricky road, and I think because um, I started out as a pediatric psychologist, mm. and as I got into private practice five years ago, I realized that although I was seeing a lot of kids and teenagers, I always did a lot of systemic work, which meant I would always include the parents in the session, whether mm. it was joint or before or after, or encouraging the kids to speak to their parents and doing it in session. And I realized that the more I met with parents and gave them the tools and the more parents were equipped, the better their kids did. And so there were cases where I didn't even need to meet with the kid. I just needed to meet with the parent mm. and then things got better. And so I'm like, well, I should then be doing more parent coaching. And the research has shown that typically when you coach a parent, who has a kid with anxiety or perfectionism or depression or a medical diagnosis, if the parent is equipped, the child does do better. And, you know, it's, and, and yes, when I, I was really in this field for many years before I had my first child and I was like, Oh, it's going to be totally easy. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> it's not awesome. because you lose perspective, you mm-hmm. lose perspective. And so there are times when, you know, I have a kid, a kids, my kids are eight and 11 and there's times when, um, especially when my son was going through his tantrum phase and my son would be like, my husband would be like, what should I do? What should we do? And I'm like, I don't know. And he's like, Oh, hello. Don't you do this for a living? And I was like, Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, and I would have to step back and think about it because at home, I'm not a, a psychologist or a parent coach. I'm a mom. Yeah. And we don't, I don't always know what the heck I'm doing. I have to, I have to, you know, not yell or not lose my patience or realize that, you know, my kid's not out to get me and I'm still a good mom. Even if I yell, like, it's okay. Like, you know, I need to be gentle with myself in the process because it's hard for him. It's hard for me. It's hard. It's just hard. Mm. It takes, it takes so much just self-awareness. It takes so much. um, And then when you learn how to learn, like self-regulate and self-soothe yourself as a parent, when there's a lot of chaos and you stay grounded and present, I imagine that changes so much. Mm -hmm. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. And when I do coach parents and whether it's on Instagram or coaching live or writing something, I always go back to It's about you first. Mm -hmm. So before you look at targeting and addressing and fixing your child or teen's behavior, focus on what's going on inside of yourself. Like when your child rolls their eyes at you or your kid has this sassy tone, 
Like, what is the first thought that you're having? Oh, they're so disrespectful. Mm-hmm. I would never get away with this in my house. I had one person write on a reel I did yesterday. She was like, I wouldn't be alive today had I hit my mom, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Like, it's like, you know, we think about I would never or oh, the nerve and we take it as a personal attack when no, it's a child, they're a teen, they're still learning to control and regulate their emotions and their thoughts and their behaviors. So we have to keep ourselves in check first. Yes. I just, I'm just, which is hard. It's hard enough not, or doing it without any children around. And so I can only imagine, have you seen, I'm actually curious about this. Have you seen kind of a rise in interest in your services um, over the last probably, I guess, few years as we have seen kind of this self-healing um, approach or people are more and more aware of the um, resources available to us. Just going on Instagram now with all the psychologists and all the information, and all the mm-hmm. tools, I feel like there has been a shift in consciousness a little bit where they're like, oh, I really need that. Yes, definitely. I think there has been a shift because I started my practice five years ago and uh, I started on Instagram kind of putting stuff out there, um, but there weren't a lot of other psychologists. And I was, I was not quite a parent coach yet at the time. I wasn't marketing myself as that yet. It was more just pediatric psychologists doing therapy and that kind of stuff. And people were interested, but they were more doing it for their children fix my kid, uh-huh. do therapy with my kids, see my kid. And I've found that in the past couple of years, really the past year, honestly, the, the uh, demand for services because of the pandemic, uh-huh. because parents are home with their children, um, because people don't have a lot of other outlets and they're just kind of stuck at home or working from home. Um, there's more of a need because before there used to be a separation that your kid was away from you in daycare or school or camp or sports, all kinds of things. And parents weren't used to being around their children all the freaking time. And so then they had to teach them and educate them and tutor them and, and everything. And then work plus work from home. Yeah. So parents were drained, they're tired and they're frustrated. And so I see like, especially with social media, Um, And what kids are seeing, it's out there. They're more savvy. And Mm. parents also are more savvy and aware about comparing their journey with other parents. You know, they see their highlight reel of this really well put together person who has these kids who are like posing for these pictures. Mm. And, oh, my life isn't like that. And it's like, well, because that's not real life. (laughs) That's not how it is. (laughs) That's why. Yeah, I'm just thinking like I, it makes sense that more and more people would be coming. And I'm guessing that the majority of the people who are coming to you know that the relationship with their child is a mirror. And it's first how you are going to tend to the relationship that you have with yourself. Because uh, I'm guessing there are probably some people that do come to you and they're like, how do you fix my child? And you're like, well, how do we fix or not fix? I don't like to use the word language around fix, but how do we actually sit with what you're feeling first? Right, exactly. And and one of the things that I address in my first session with parents is talking about their childhood, like how they grew up, mm. what their parents were like, what did they like about their childhood, what they disliked about it, because it provides a frame of reference. Because what I've, I've often found is that people who are seeking support and help and education, it's that they grew up in, many of them grew up in households that they didn't like or that were toxic mm-hmm. or unhealthy And they have made an effort, most of them, a conscious effort to be nothing like that home environment, to be nothing like their parents or their caretakers. 
But the problem is that then they've gone the opposite way. So my parents were so strict. So I'm gonna let my kids do whatever they want. Or, you know, my parents never listened to me. So I talk to my kids all the time. And it's like, oh my gosh, like you're overloading your child with education and togetherness and connection. And maybe you're giving your kid the thing that they don't need. Maybe they do need more space and you're like smothering them, you know? And so it's really helping them understand that when we come from a perspective of trying not to be like our parents or trying not to be like the household we grew up in, rather than saying, no, I'm going to be what my child needs. I'm going to give them the kind of home and the kind of parent that they need because each kid is going to be different. Mm. I have two kids and they have very different personalities. So I can't parent them the same way. I shouldn't because then I'll be missing out. And so it's about parenting the kids you have and making sure that you're not parenting pretend children that, you know, you're not parenting you. And that's what I see a lot of parents do is they're trying to parent in a way that they wished their parent had parented them. Keep talking on that. That's, that's (laughs) good. It's like that. It's like, well, you know, my, my mom was never there for me. And so I make sure that I'm always up in my daughter's business Mm. and I'm always present and we're always hanging out and we're always connected. It's like, well, but your child is an introvert and she actually needs time to herself. So that's actually not helpful. You know, just summed up my childhood. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's for a lot of people where they, and it's like this whole thing. um, One of the things that people talk a lot about is the reparenting. Yeah. Is that giving yourself yeah. what you needed rather than trying to meet your needs through your kids mm-hmm. through like, well, I always wanted to do sports and I sucked at it. So I make sure my kid does every sport yeah. or, you know, I was an amazing student or whatever. So I'm making sure that my kids are in all AP classes. It's like, well, your kid isn't really that great of a student. So why are <laughs> you, let, let, let's maybe refocus their strengths elsewhere, yeah. you know? So it's about giving you what you need, doing your own work, whether it's through therapy or parent coaching or DIYing it or support from friends, but giving yourself what you need. So that way you're not having to try to meet your needs through your kids Yeah. because they're not there to meet your needs in that way. And it's not healthy. No, it's like you're, <laughs> I had a uh, Julie Lightcott Hames on um, earlier on in the, in the podcast. And she was talking about how, um, how we as parents, we inevitably shape the way our children's dream when we are still living with the grief of our unmet expectations of how we thought life was going to be or where we thought we would end up in life, but we never did. And when that is the driving force behind our life, we're now projecting that onto our children and it has nothing to do with that child or what they might want. It's all about you. And what we really, I feel like describing is the overparenting trap. Yep. In yep, so many exactly. ways. Yep. And they, and really they have shown more and more evidence that says that specifically dads in the last 30 years are actually more present and more physically and emotionally available to their kids now than they ever were. Whoa. But yet parents still feel like they're not spending time with their kids. Like there's a significant increase because, you know, 30, 40 years ago, dads just went to work, brought home the bacon and then, you know, sat in front of the TV or the newspaper with their friends. I mean, they, they didn't engage with their kids. You didn't play and hang out and, 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 you know, do things with your kids. And the shift has really been significant, but yet parents still feel like they're not doing enough. Mm. Where do we go from there? That, cause I'm just feeling like I'm not enough or it's not enough has wreaked so much havoc 
in my life. And that's been like the big wound um, that mm-hmm. I've had to personally venture or go down that journey. And, and it took me years of therapy to realize that, oh my gosh, no matter which level of success or no matter what outcome it is, it's never enough because deep down I'm not enough. And it's this shame that has been a great motivator in my life for the longest time because that fear of being exposed will really light a fire under your ass. Um, you know, it can get you to this place, but the problem with that is it's never enough. Um, so I can only imagine as a parent, because there is another life involved or lives, children involved, um, how do you begin to work around this, this idea of like, oh my God, I still feel like as a parent, I'm not doing enough. Well, I think those are great, great points because I think that's where it goes back to, like you said, Caleb, is that it's not that it's not enough, it's that I'm not enough. I mm-hmm. keep giving myself this narrative and I'm playing it on a, this over and over, this reel over and over again that, oh, I can do this amazing thing, but it's still not enough because I'm not enough because I'm not. And you just keep doing this and playing this out over and over again. And then it gets to the point where I remember years ago when I, I used to supervise psychology um, fellows and residents in training. And um, a lot of them were these overly high achieving students um, who had always done well, always gotten straight A's. And so by the time they were 26, 27, they were already doctors and, you know, doctors in training and because everything always worked out well. And when they were in this training program that was really intense, they expected, oh, they're going to get five out of five on every rating. It's like, well, you just started a month ago. You haven't arrived. You have two years to train like one month in, you're not a five out of five. And, you know, that's it's that same message of I have to prove it. And so many times yeah. they, they came across as conceited mm. or obnoxious because they, they felt because they already looked competent. They already were competent. They just had to fine tune their skill set. But because they didn't believe they were, they like overcompensated. Mm-hmm. And so it made them look like a jerk. It mm-hmm. made them look obnoxious. It made them look be kind of unlikable. And I would have to say, Hey, you're amazing. That's why you're doing what you're doing. This is why you're in the training program, but you think you're not. And so you're like overdoing it and it's making you come across as conceited or yeah. that you're full of yourself because people already think you're amazing, but mm-hmm. you don't believe you are. And so when you do that, then you're, again, you're showing people the wrong part of you. And it's that, um, that self-awareness, that kind of um, knowing how you come across to other people. When you have been given messages that are not in alignment with the way you view yourself, which often comes from childhood, mm-hmm. I think that's what messes with us. So, for example, if you feel like you're a happy person, you're energetic, you're outgoing, and you feel like you're just a likable person, Mm -hmm. and you're in a group of people, and someone says, I just heard this from a teenager the other day, they said, yeah, I was, I just gone to college, and I was super excited, and people were like, you are just too much, Mm. chill out. So then for the rest of the semester, and then the rest of the year, she was always like, restraining herself, pulling back. Cause I don't want to look like I'm too much, but I always liked it about me. So here are these people. Well, one person that gave that feedback, here's this one person that gives you this feedback. And because you kind of thought that already about yourself, it was confirmed. So now you've changed your entire personality, which then led to more depression, which Mm. then led to isolation. 
And it's like, no, what about saying, well, dude, I like this Mm -hmm. part of me. I like who I am. I like how I show up. If I'm too much for you, then maybe you need to bow out of Mm -hmm. my company. (laughs) It takes so much courage to stand in that sense of It takes a lot. Oh yeah. It takes a lot of courage because that has to say that I am undoubtedly like, I, I love myself for who I am. Mm even the stuff that may not be fine-tuned, even if I am too much at times and I'm loud and I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, way happy. Well, that's okay. Yeah, That's who I am. And it's okay to like that part of myself and to have compassion for all parts because yeah. nobody is perfect. Mm-hmm. And we all have things about ourselves that we have to work on. I feel I have so much, <laughs> like as soon as you said that analogy, I'm like, oh, so much compassion and empathy towards this person. Cause like, that was my life. <laughs> I would mm. show up. And then the hard part is, is that you're not actually engaging. You're in your head. Yeah. You're constantly living in your head. And it's like, am I too much? Am I, do I need to speak up now? Mm. Do I say this? Do I not say this? And so people aren't actually having an encounter with you. You're not building an actual heartfelt relationship with people because you're spending all this time in your head and, there is nothing more uncomfortable than spending that time in your head. Um, but then also, this is the beautiful work that I've experienced anyways, as I have learned how to go back and to, to heal the narratives that I've been holding on to me that would have been triggered by somebody saying you're too much, right? Because that was like a wound that got triggered that responded, that made me respond and like, well, okay, I'm going to back off now. As I have done that, there's come like this, deeper sense of self-acceptance, this radical acceptance that has produced the courage to stand in my own belonging and to be saying, just like you responded with like, oh, hey, like, that's great. I'm sorry you feel that way. Or I'm not even sorry that you feel that way. No. You know, right? I'm not even sorry that you feel like this is who I am. And sayonara. Right. Right. (laughs) I'm just saying there's that correlation. Right. It's like we're apologizing and we're being so apologetic for the way that we show up. And it doesn't mean that we're all like perfect and we don't have to work on anything about ourselves. But it's like, well, why do we have to make adjustments because someone else is uncomfortable with how we show up? And I I remember when I was in college and I was um, I was a horrible student and like academically in high school. I just high school was just not for me. I barely even passed. And I got into college from a conditional acceptance because they felt sorry for me because my senior year of high school, I grew up in the Caribbean. And so my senior year of high school, we got hit by a hurricane and it ripped apart my house. I was homeless for nine months and I got dengue fever. I was eating like MREs and Red Cross food. Like I had a whole, like this amazing essay that I wrote about this experience. And um, they felt sorry for me and they said, okay, well, we believe that you have potential. So we'll accept you to see if you make it here. Wow. And I got on the Dean's list like every semester. Cause that was like, that was my jam, like being there and actually learning the stuff I wanted to learn wow. helped me to really thrive. But anyway, I remember I was getting really successful. My goal was every year, I just wanted to move up a step, just a little step. So maybe I lived on campus and then I wanted to live off campus the next year. Like just always a little step every year. And I remember things were going well and I was telling my mom about it. And I was just always kind of talking about it and I was so excited. And she's like, well, be careful when you come home and you see your friends. Don't talk too much about how good things are going. And I was like, but why not? <sighs> well, because you don't want people to think you're bragging or think you're too good. And mm-hmm. I'm like, what? And so then I remember that has stuck with me because it's always like, 
Mm. Well, things are going well, but I need to, let's pull back a little bit. Cause I don't want people to think that I'm bragging or I don't want them to think I'm better than them. Um, or that things always work out for me when it's like, it doesn't. And it hasn't, you're just seeing the highlights. You don't yeah. see all the work that I've put into getting to where I'm, I've gotten to, you know, Absolutely. but it's amazing how usually those little messages that are supposed to be good for us, that people think are supposed to be good for us, that keep us humble or in check. Play and small. It, yeah. It quiets you. And then like you said, Caleb is like you, then you're in your head playing all these imaginary scenarios with people who don't even have this inside look into who you are and how you're mm. showing up. And so then it changes, it changes yeah. how people interact with you and perceive you because then they don't know what they're picking up. They think, Oh, you're being a snob or you're awkward when it's like, Nope, mm-hmm. I'm just trying not to be too much. <laughs> I'm just trying not to brag. <laughs> What's beautiful about it is I just now, like I'm 36, I'm gonna be 37. So one second. <clears throat> Excuse me. And in a few months and just recently, probably within the last year, I can show up and be in a group. I can show up and be fully present and not be in my head. And oh my gosh, it's, it's amazing. Like there are times when I get into my head and I'm like, oh, like I used to live there. But I'm, what I'm saying is that when I have learned how to be fully present, I have attracted my tribe. Hmm. There's like this, that. The, the, that direct correlation of like me doing the work of showing up and being fully present. So that looks like, doing my own, my own emotional work that led me to deep self-acceptance that allowed me to show up fully myself and to just engage and not worried about what other people are thinking or saying, I'm just here and I'm me and it's good. It's actually then changed the dynamics of the people that I'm attracting into my life. And now suddenly it's like, oh, here's where I belong. I love that. And, and I think that's so hard for so many people, especially when their identity moves from being me separate, mm-hmm. maybe being married or having a partner and then having a child, your identity takes different, goes through different phases and being a parent is a different identity. But yeah. I, what I see so often with parents, um, more so moms, but what I see often with parents is that they start to lose who they were yeah. pre-kids. And then everything is wrapped up in just being just in quotes just being a parent or just being a mom and they forget the hobbies. They forget their friends. They forget the things that they used to love to do rather than bringing your kids along with you. So like one of the things that I love doing and um, what, you know, attracted my husband and I to each other is our love for movies Mm. and like sci-fi movies and action movies and superhero movies. And um, we've brought our, now that they're at the age, which I love now that they can really fully enjoy them they're like coming alongside us in that and under loving. And, you know, we have an encyclopedia, a DC encyclopedia and a Marvel encyclopedia. Oh, wow. <laughs> and when they know people like a superhero or villains origin story and their powers and their nemesis, that makes me proud. Right. <laughs> Cause that's, that's, that's me. I've always loved that stuff. It's always been who that's part of like my thing that kind of energizes me. And so instead of just, putting that to the side and just saying, well, I'll just all watch all kid movies and not expose my kids to any of this. It's like, no, you're going to also join me in this while I also join you in the stuff that you love. And I think that's how we can have more self-compassion mm-hmm. too, is to know that we don't have to give up those parts of ourselves. We don't have to forget who we are. And so, you know, just like when I go to a lot of like big psychology conferences, 
and I meet a lot of psychologists and so many of them just talk about the literature and the research and they're all like psychology, psychologists, God. And I love talking about other things that it, it, I'm not just a psychologist. I'm not just a parent coach. Yeah. I, there's many other parts of me that are interesting, that are fun, which helps me to connect with other people as well too, as well as parts of myself. And I think that's a huge thing for me is that that's how you can have more grace, compassion for yourself, your kids and your journey is to not forget who you are, mm. the things that drive you, the things that make you happy and excited, that wild child mm. that maybe people like try to suppress. And I've done that with parents where I'm like, you know, you know, where's that, that fire, that, that hyper, that loud kid that mm. you've gotten rid of because people told you you were too much yeah. and let's find her, let's yeah. find her again. It's like, I don't know where that child is. And that's why I'm so heavily invested into making sure my child never does this or doesn't go down the same route or the same thing that I, I my mom used to say that to me all the time. Like, I'm not going to let you make the same mistakes that I made huh. and sounds like love. It sounds yes. good. <laughs> it sounds healthy. Right. But then it was the beginning to a very codependent relationship between my mother and I, where then I felt this very, I down the road was not able to make decisions that I wanted to make for myself because I felt responsible for my mom's emotional well-being. Mm -hmm. Right. And that started as in a, as a child. Um, but you make, you, you make such a, a good point around parents who lose themselves. Right. It's so easy. And it comes from a good place. Like just honor that it comes from a really good place where it's like, of course, you want to be the best parent. Of course, you want to show up for your child the best way that you can show up, of course. Um, but if you're not doing it consciously, if you're not doing it from this place of uh, self-awareness, it's easy to lose yourself. So for somebody listening to this, specifically a parent who has made parenting their life, where do they start on deconstructing that? It's a great question. It's a complicated question yes. <laughs> answer. But I think the first step is, is the awareness. Okay. It's just having the awareness that you're engaging in these patterns, that you are um, living your, the wrong life. You're, you're living through your kids mm. or you're, you're living so that your kids don't make the mistakes that you made. Um, so just having that awareness and then having an, the insight as well into where did that start from? Most people, just like superheroes and villains, they have their origin story. Yeah. They have their pivotal point of when something, an interaction, some event occurred that put in the that message in your head that blank and that you've just been replaying it for 10, 20, 30 years. So maybe having some insight and connection into where that message started from. Where did that belief come from? And, rather, and not analyzing, mm. not judging it, not doing any of that, just noticing it. That's where that compassion really gets weaved into the process is just being aware, being kind of having insight into it, noticing it, and then saying, okay, well, at the moment I responded or didn't the best way that I knew how, mm. given the tools that I had. But now I've accepted where I'm at. And I'm willing to change and be different because it's not working for me and it's not working for my parenting or it's not working for my marriage or it's not working in my friendships and just be willing to change. Because I think once we can then be willing to say, I don't need to fix myself. I don't need to say that there's something wrong with me. I just need to say that I've been involved in this pattern 
that's not helpful. It's not effective. And it's actually hurting me and my kids. So then what do I need to do next? And so I would say, um, a big part of this process, there, there's two types of therapies that I think would be really important. So whether you get workbooks and do it yourself or you work with a therapist and work um, through it, um, is there's two ways. One is like cognitive behavioral therapy, which I think is really powerful because mm. it really, cognitive behavioral therapy is really about looking at what are your thoughts mm-hmm. and how are they connected to your emotions and then how you behave. And the other part, the one that I actually love the most is acceptance and commitment therapy. And with ACT, um, it's about, it's that whole process of accepting, accepting where I'm at, accepting the choices that I've made or the choices that were made for me before I knew better, and then committing to change. Mm. I'm not blaming anybody. I'm finding meaning and purpose, even through the suffering. I'm not saying that it was good that I suffered or that it was good that there was trauma, or there was good that it was there's codependency. No, I'm just saying that that's how it was, but I'm now committing to living differently. And those are, those are powerful steps to take because then you can say, no, I'm taking ownership now. No longer that life is happening to me. I'm going to choose how I want to live my life and I'm going to start to do it. And then you're going to backslide. There's behavioral drift that occurs when you're like, woohoo, I'm going to work out five times a week. Oh, well, it's, it's raining today. I'll just, I'll just eat some donuts and go tomorrow. Right? And then we drift back. It's the same thing with emotional and behavioral change. It's just, it's noticing that we need to make a change, but noticing that we tend to default back to previous ways of functioning. Yeah. And that's okay too. Cause that's when you can be like, Oh, dang it. I slipped up again. That's all right. Let me get back on track. Yeah. I remember um, me having to, first off, that's amazing. The acceptance and commitment ther- uh, therapy. I do yes. find that the CBT was probably the the main type of therapy that I have used in my life um, initially to begin with. And that foundation had led me to d- being willing and able to accept things that have been so hard for me to accept. Um, so mm-hmm. like they kind of funneled into it. Um Oh, I just lost my train of thought. I do this all the time on a podcast. <laughs> but can just to stay on this uh, thought and it will come to me. Um, can you talk to me why acceptance is so important? Because I think people hear that all the time. Like accept, 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 accept. Like what is acceptance not? And then why is it so important? That's a great question. I mean, acceptance is because the alternative is to reject. Yeah. And you can't reject what has already happened. And so when you keep rejecting, what you're doing is you're focusing all your time, your energy, and your mind on the thing that has already occurred. You're already feeling that you have low self-esteem. You're already being judgy about yourself. You're already having conflict with your kids. You already are shaming yourself. So it's already there. So to reject it and pretend like it doesn't exist it's just going to be a constant reminder every time it happens. Yeah. So the alternative is to just accept it for how it is. Accept the toxic interactions. Accept that there was abuse. Accept that there was self-esteem issues. Just accept not saying that it was okay and giving it, um, giving it permission that it happened to you. No, you're saying that I accept that it happened. I accept that this was something that um, occurred to me that I didn't have control over. I accept that that's the way it happened. 
but I'm also saying that I'm accepting my right and my ability to heal and move Ooh, through it and yes. move, you know, I don't have to stay stuck there Come on. because really when I worked with kids, I used to do a lot of work with trauma, um, with severe abuse cases and with kids. And, um, I remember having this kid years ago as a teenage boy and it was just a horrific situation, horrific situation. And I had told him, I said, you know, given the stuff that's happened to you, nobody would blame you. If you were resentful of everybody, you trusted nobody else and you just crawled into the corner and just refused to live life. Nobody would blame you. Actually, they would say, I get it. Yeah. But then what? Then what? It's like now you're not living the life that you actually want to live, that now you actually do have control over, mm. that you can say, okay, you know what? It's messed up what happened to me, but I can choose to move forward with this therapist, with the family, with medication, with exercise, with eating better, with accepting the people in my life who actually care about me and mm. love me and want the best for me now, not before, but actually now. But again, it would be justified. It would be, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, totally. Give up on life. Totally, totally justified. But that's not, it's about accepting what is, what has already happened and then be willing to then move forward. And that's what I believe is the best way. And that's how I've been able to move forward, knowing that, okay, yeah. I was a horrible student in high school and many, much of that was my choice. <laughs> but you know what? <laughs> I can say it is what it, it is. It limited the choices I had for college, but that's okay. Yeah. I, then I said, okay, I'm going to accept what is and I will move forward and then choose to then commit to my academic achievements and continue to move forward. So then when people say, oh, well, you have a doctorate, you were always good in school. Uh-uh, no, I was not. <laughs> that was a choice to yeah. finally say, okay, no more. I'm going to not be a victim of these circumstances or my poor, bad choices. I'm going to start to move forward and say, oh, I have control over these things. I can choose to study. I can choose to have a schedule. I can choose to have study partners yeah. and move forward and actually do my best. That's mm. a choice now. This is so good. So powerful. And I'm still like, I love that you were a very uh, or a, a not so good student in high school and that you barely passed almost <laughs> to, right and now you have a doctor now you're a doctor and it's just it's amazing um this idea of acceptance I just want to sit here with it for a second because it's just so powerful and I can imagine that probably I know there are steps like self-awareness before you can move into measures of acceptance in your life but as a parent learning how to accept all the things of mm -hmm. you or things that might have happened to you or things just your life in general is such a critical step that you so that you don't live vicariously through your children or so that you don't project onto your children. I just love that you what you said, like, if we're not accepting, what are we doing? We're rejecting. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's like every day that we don't live in this measure of acceptance, we're actually choosing self betrayal. Mm hmm. You know, and when you think of it like that, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be the best person that I'm being while being at war with my life. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to be the best parent, the best off uh, business person, whatever it might be, but yet I'm still at war with my life uh, because I have not yet chosen to accept the fullness and realize that it all belongs. Yeah. And I love that you use the analogy of the war because in acceptance and commitment therapy, they, a lot of these, a lot of metaphors and analogies, which I really love using. And um, one of the um, analogies that are used about is about the whole idea of the war will always go on. Yeah. 
self-esteem, with anxiety, not being good enough. That'll you can always be it can be guaranteed that there's gonna yeah. be something that you will always struggle with. Yeah. So you can choose to be all up in the drama, all up on the battlefield, and just try to fight it and fight it and fight it and fight it. Or you can choose to say, you know what? This will always be there. If I want drama in my life and I want to feel bad about myself, I could always come back to it. But instead, I will choose to leave the battle. Because mm. it's just, why? It yeah. doesn't work. Being all up in the drama hasn't helped me. Has it yeah. ever helped me feel better about myself? Mm. Has it ever helped me with better communication with my kids or with coworkers or friends or my spouse or my partner? It's never helped. So instead... My other choice is to accept what is that there's, there will always be a battle mm. and to leave. And I remember, I love the scene in Wonder Woman, the first Wonder Woman movie, when she is, there's, they're in the middle of the battle. They're like, oh, it's no man's land. No one's ever survived. And she's like, I am no man. And then she like <laughs> walks up there <laughs> and she like gets through it. Mm. Right. And so it's like, we can choose to leave it and mm. say, no, that's not my fight. Well, we could choose to then move through it, knowing that we might get badly bruised and burned and it could be a fight, but it can also be a growing experience Yeah. because in moving through it, we can actually get on the other side of it, knowing that, Hey, that was a challenge. And look at me, I can actually get through it. I can just accept it where it is. And that's what I try to really help parents to see is that even when your kid is doing whatever they're doing, we have to accept them where they're at. Mm accept you where you're at. It doesn't mean you're saying it's okay. And that's where a lot of parents struggle. So you're saying that it's okay for my kids to have tantrums or to cuss me out or have an attitude or not clean their room. I am not saying that at all. Yeah. <laughs> right. We still want to teach our kids skills, build healthy habits and have good relationships. Mm. So, but what we also need to be able to do is accept them where they're at. And I remember um, at last school year when That's my kids so were finishing, <laughs> when they were finishing their third and fifth grade and we had our parent teacher conferences and I have two of my kids have very different personalities. And with the one teacher conference with my son, they were like, Oh, your son is such a delight. He's hilarious. Like he is freaking hilarious. He's really funny very loud, very talkative. He talks so much. He just needs to talk a little bit less. Then with my daughter, her teacher is like, oh, your daughter's so sweet. She's so kind. She just needs, she's just so shy. She needs mm. to speak up more. Mm. So I was kind of giving this feedback to the kids, right? And I was like, hey, so guys, what do you think? What's the appropriate amount of talking then? Huh? You talk too much. You don't talk enough. <laughs> Like, really, like when we do that, I'm not saying that my son should be disruptive in class all the time yeah. or that my child should always be quiet. I'm saying that when we're always looking at changing our kids and wishing they were different, mm. how will we know when it's good enough? Yeah. And how will they know when they're good enough? How will my son know when is the right amount of talking enough? How will my daughter know when is the right amount of speaking up enough before she's accepted and that it's no longer a bad thing? Yeah. Mm. So that's where the acceptance comes in is like, no, I love that you're hilarious. I love that you're, that you're a great conversationalist. I just want you to be able to be aware of that, read the room right, yeah. and know <laughs> when to pull back just a little bit. Mm-hmm. 
And I want you to be able to know that when you need to advocate for yourself, that it's okay to be quiet. It's okay to observe and know when to speak up. And she does. Mm. She will speak up for herself (laughs) when she needs to. (laughs) So good. Can I ask like what your initial response was to the teacher? Yeah, when the they were first telling me about my son, and she's like, your son is so funny. I'm like, I know, right? He's freaking hilarious to me, too. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, and he just talks a lot. I'm like, yeah, he really does, like nonstop. And she's like, yeah, if you could just maybe talk a little bit less. <laughs> and I said, yeah. Um, yeah, what would exactly would that look like? Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm not really sure. Yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> And then with my, oh, shit, your daughter is just so shy. Yeah, yeah. I was the same way as a child, too. So was my husband. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm. I just wish she would speak up more. Yeah, when she finds her voice, she will. Yeah. That's so good. So good. Um, Shifting directions a little bit for the last few minutes that we have. Can we talk about what it looks like as a parent to create and sustain emotionally safe environments at home? so that children can emotionally mature, uh, so that Mm. children can, or so that younger people can um, learn what it looks like to show up fully themselves? That's an excellent question. What does that look like? Yeah, so I think what that looks like is um, remembering that kids thrive most, actually everybody, in environments where they feel safe. Yeah and secure and heard and seen and understood. But at the, the foundation of that is safety and security, mm. which is why this pandemic has wreaked havoc on so many people because they didn't feel safe, they didn't feel secure and they didn't know what to expect. And with kids, in order for them to thrive in their home environment, they need to know that they're physically and emotionally safe which means they need to have parents and caregivers that they can rely on to keep them safe. And many times people assume, oh, I do keep my kids safe. I cover the outlets and I put away the sharp knives. And yeah, it goes beyond that though. That's important, definitely. But it also means emotional safety. And one of the interesting things they've looked at um, in kind of psychological studies is that when um, it's this whole concept of mirror neurons being able to reflect back what people are giving you and they have said that if as an adult you have a very angry face and an Mm. angry tone with your child that is felt as unsafe to them Mm -hmm. and they it it triggers an adaptive survival response so they either have to fight flight freeze you know do something to keep themselves safe depending on their personality but also they've, they've also found that parents who have a very flat affect, they're kind of unemotional, unengaging, and just kind of blah there. That's also perceived as threatening as well because kids can't read you. Yeah. They don't know what to expect. So you're, you know, I've had parents tell me, yeah, I stay pretty calm and I'm pretty like even keel. And then they push me and they push me and they push me and then I lose it. And I'm like, well, that's not good. either. (laughs) So if you're always angry or you're always super, super chill until you blow up, those are still unsafe because I'm, I don't know what to expect from you. I feel emotionally unsafe and I always have to like walk on eggshells just to make sure I don't upset you. 
that can lead to some codependence that could lead to some perfectionism and that could lead to um they doubt themselves because they they're so busy trying to read you they can't read themselves they don't know what they need and so i think as parents parenting is hard work Mm. and when parents say is it this is it supposed to be hard i'm like well yeah it, it is hard but it shouldn't always be there's going to be phases where it's harder than others um more specifically especially during this pandemic the calls that i'm getting the most for parent coaching are parents of four-year-olds mm. like that's a really tough age now it used to be two then it was three then it was four, four. people are like yes yeah, because the two-year-olds are getting older <laughs> it's those same <laughs> difficult ones um but it's the it's about really being able to understand who you are what are your triggers and then what are your needs yeah. so that you can meet those needs again so often parents lose themselves in their identity as a parent and they forget that they have needs too yeah i have needs to be i love my naps i need to have rest i like to go out on my own as well i like to spend time with my husband on date nights if those things aren't able to happen i'm more irritable yeah. i'm less available to my kids and so if we're so busy meeting our kids' needs and being a martyr for our kids, mm. thinking, oh, my parent was never there for me, I'm going to always be there for my kids. Well, maybe they don't want you around all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so I think being aware of that, being aware of how you come across, mm. you say your kids have a tone. What about your tone? Mm. Do you sound like you're always mad all the time? Do you always sound impatient? Mm. Do you always sound like you're bothered by them? Yeah. Maybe you're the reason why they have a tone. Absolutely. And I guess it's right? in the same in the same lane. It's like, how do you model emotional health? Like, you know, I had somebody, my mom, who I love dearly, um, was always like, we were the ones on eggshells. It was like watching mm. and constantly observing, like, when's the shoe going to drop, right? Mm-hmm. Just constantly observing and... I never knew how much that played into my adult life until when I was dating a girl a few years ago. And she's like, why are you always watching me? Hmm. Like, why are you always observing me? And I realized that as I started doing some attachment therapy, that that constant observing of my mom waiting for the shoe to drop because she didn't know how to model emotional health well or how to model like working through emotions. Um, and she would just go, ah, and she would drop, mm. you know, it created such an anxious attachment in me, right? That where I had to really protect myself by just observing the room and watching like what's going yeah. to happen. And now I'm in, I'm, I'm an adult and I'm in a, an adult relationship and I'm now that little scared little boy in me is just waiting for the shoe to drop. And so I came off, she was like, you're smothering me. And this mm. was happening in every single of my relationships. And I'm like, well obviously it's your fault. Obviously I love you so much. You know, I'm just, I'm just so in love with you. Right. But then I was like, Oh my gosh, like my primary caregivers inability to model healthy emotions has rippled into my adult relationships in my life. When I drew that connection, it was just like, Oh, and now it's powerful. And now it's just like, Oh, I can change that story. Now I can change that story, especially for the children that, my wife and I will hopefully be bringing into the world. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's where you are, where I think it's important to step back and say, you know, when your kid is doing something and you're taking it personally and you think it's a manipulation tactic or you think it's something against you, Mm -hmm. you can say, okay, 
my child is three. They are not trying to ruin my life. <laughs> the story that I'm telling myself is so good. they should respect their elders and they're not respecting me, yeah. which is why I'm flipping off on them and losing my mind. That is not their problem. They're communicating an unmet need through their behaviors. There you go. So I need to speak to the need behind the behavior rather than punishing and attacking and nagging and lecturing the behavior. Yeah. Instead, I will speak to the thing, the need behind the behavior. So, so if I see that my kid is acting a certain way, I can bring attention to it. Hey, I noticed that you've been really like yelling in our faces lately. I noticed that you've been doing these things lately. Mm. Tell me what's really going on. What's happening? And how and asking them for a redo, doing things differently so that you're not always stuck in the same negative pattern. I love that. I could talk to you for another hour, but thank you uh, (laughs) so much uh, for coming on today. Um, Where can people find you? And I'll I'll make sure to have all your links um, uh, and all the work. I love following you on Instagram, your reels. They're one of my favorite to follow. Thank Um, you. Yeah. And so I'll make sure to have everything linked. uh, But just for the sake of the podcast, where can they find you? Yeah. So they can find me on my website. Um, my practice is a new day pediatric psychology and they can find me at a new day which is essay as in San Antonio. So a new day And then, like you said, I'm very active on Instagram, providing a lot of different insights for parents and their um, children, as well as their own mental health. And that's at Dr. Anne Louise Lockhart. And then on Facebook at a new day pediatric psychology. Awesome. So, and I have lots of courses and different things I'm offering through um, my website as well, too. I know. I was looking at them all and I was like, buying this, buying this, buying this. <laughs> but thank you again. Um, and thank you, Caleb. Yeah, we'll talk soon. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.